Good morning. We are going to study another character in our series on characters in the Bible. And uh, we're toward the ends of the Gospels. So we're going to study this morning Thomas. What's the word that everybody uh, connects with Thomas? Yeah, doubting. I think Thomas got a bad rap on that. You're going to see what I mean when we get into the section this morning. But um, Thomas is in the Bible more than just at the end of uh, John, where he's known for his doubting. It's wonderful. Um, God gives us four little snippets of Thomas in his life, and there definitely is uh, a trend in his character. And I think you're going to see it as we go through it this morning. But... uh, I would not put doubting as the adjective to describe Thomas, although certainly doubting is there in the last episode, but the, it's another D word and it's another opposite of faith. It's discouragement. So we're going to look at being discouraged this morning as well as being encouraged. But uh, actually a better adjective for Thomas then would be uh, discouraged <clears throat> rather than doubting. The first time we meet him, besides in just a list of disciples uh, whom Jesus Jesus chose at the beginning of each gospel, is in John chapter 11. So I'd like you to turn there. It's interesting. uh, Doubt is an opposite of faith. Faith is an interesting word because it has so many different opposites. There's not just one opposite of faith. Doubt is one. Discouragement is another. Fear is an opposite of faith. Self-confidence is an opposite of faith. It's interesting. Any time we're not trusting the Lord, then whatever we're doing is the opposite of faith, whether it's self-confidence or fear. But here we're going to see that it's in Thomas's case, <coughs> discouragement. Yeah, and we're going to find he's a regular guy just like you and me. Remember that these guys uh, aren't carved out of marble on top of a podium. They're just regular people like us. And God put what he put in here about each one for our instruction. So to get the context here, uh, we're going to start in verse one of John chapter 11. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother's brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said. And after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. 
However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> it's interesting that Thomas uh, doesn't appear in the Gospels until toward the very end of the Lord Jesus's ministry. So he, he appears at a time when the disciples are beginning, all of them to become discouraged and confused because they see the storm clouds building. Uh, you notice they said, look, uh, don't go to Judea because they tried to stone you before. You, you go there now, they're going to kill you. Uh, they have reason to say that. Look back at chapter 8. At the very end, uh, verse 58, well-known verse, Jesus says to the uh, Jews, most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Then chapter 10, verse 31. Actually, verse 30. This is what uh, provoked them when Jesus said, I and my father are one. Verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered the many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So that, that's the lead-in to the uh, chapter that we're looking at here. In fact, it happened again, verse 39, just to uh, finish it off. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. So three incidents. They're trying to kill Jesus now. When they pick up stones, uh, we're not talking about, you know, little rocks here. We're talking about stones like the ones they used to kill Stephen with. Terrible way to die. We're talking about big stones here. So the disciples have seen this. And, uh, and so you can understand just in general, they're getting a little discouraged. What's going on? Jesus is not popular. And so, yes... Uh, Thomas is discouraged. They all are. But Thomas, as you'll see, tends to be more easily discouraged than the rest of them. So uh, that's the circumstance we're in here. All right. All the disciples are afraid. They had uh, Jesus had three previous brushes with death, I guess we could say. And then I think adding to their dismay, their confusion is the way Jesus behaves here about the death of Lazarus. They don't understand what Jesus is doing here. First of all, he was told that Lazarus was sick. And we're told in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, but then what does it say? So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. Whoa. It looks strange. Uh, if he loves him, why does he go down there and help him? You see, and the disciples probably interpret that as Jesus being afraid to go down there, which would add to their fear. 
You know? Why is Jesus waiting? He's waiting for Lazarus to die. Okay? The Lord knows what he's doing. He's, do, he's, he's, do, he's going to do a much greater miracle than heal a sick guy. He's going to raise him from the dead. And he knows that. The disciples don't. It's very important. The Lord knows what he's doing. The disciples don't. And they watch Jesus. And because they don't understand what he's doing, they put a wrong turn on it. So he delays two days. Um, and then even more confusing, in verse 4, you notice what Jesus said at the beginning, the sickness is not unto death. Did Lazarus die? Was Jesus lying? No. What Jesus meant by that was, he's not going to stay dead. <laughs> okay? It's not unto death. He He's just going to kind of... Um, you know, going to the twilight zone for three days or something, okay? But the disciples don't understand that. So that when Jesus begins by saying, this uh, sickness is not unto death, and then later he says, Lazarus is dead, they're going, wow, the Lord made a mistake, you see. The point is, the Lord did not make a mistake. We need to be careful in thinking the Lord made a mistake. Just because we don't understand what the Lord is doing doesn't mean that we know better than him. Right? You ever done that? I have. Second guessing the Lord. And then on top of everything else, to add to the confusion, uh, it looks like Jesus is not going there. And then at the very end, he changes his mind and says, okay, let's go. So they're really confused. Now, if... We can see it clearly now. We understand exactly what Jesus is doing, and we know why he waited. We know that Lazarus was going to die and that Jesus was going to raise him from the dead. The disciples knew none of that. All they know is Jesus has heard that someone he loves very much is sick. He doesn't go down and do anything about it. He said he wasn't going to die, but he died. And then all of a sudden he decides to go down. So, and then on top of all of that, we have the idea that the Jews are out to get Jesus in Judea, which is where, by the way, Bethany is, where Lazarus lives. And so they're going to go back into the mouth of the lion, so to speak. And they don't want to go. That's why when Jesus said, Lazarus sleeps and I go to wake him, the disciples said, well, that's good, Lord. He'll do well. You know, a little rest, a couple aspirin and, and uh, see the doctor when you're done, you know. In other words, that's good. We don't have to go there. That's the idea, you see. And just when they think they're off the hook, then Jesus turns around and says, okay, it's time to go. They're not happy campers. They're, they're afraid. Okay? You would be too. You saw those stones they'd been picking up. And you're very close to Jesus. You're one of his disciples. You're going to be right there. So they don't want to go. And the point is here, Thomas, out of all of them, makes this claim, well, let's go die with him. It's interesting to me, uh, you read enough commentaries, and there are some commentators, when they write about people in the Bible, if they're a Bible person, they can do no wrong. Even though 
<laughs> they're making mistakes. It's like they have this holy aura, you know, woo, the big halo or something around them. And so many of the commentators say, look how courageous Thomas is. You know, Jesus is going to go down into this dangerous spot and Thomas has the idea, well, we'll go down and die with him. Isn't that good? They missed the point that it was Jesus's idea that they go with him. That wasn't Thomas's. Twice Jesus said, let us go. But Bill in his commentary and a few others point out, and, and they're exactly right, this is not a declaration of courage. It's a declaration of discouragement. Uh, you ever said anything like that, you know? It, it, it's kind of an extreme statement, you know, well, we must go down and die. You know, by the way, someone who is discouraged can become discouraging. Isn't that right? How do you think the other disciples felt when Thomas blurted this out? You know? <laughs> oh, thanks, Thomas. You know? Why did he do that? Well, I think he did it for the reason we often do things like this. And that is, he wanted Jesus to speak up and reassure them. He's, I, I think he left that out there, you know. Well, we must have die with him. And he's waiting for Jesus to say, it's all right, Thomas, don't worry. We're going to go. Nobody's going to die. Everything will be fine. That's what he wants, you see. The point is, he, like us, he wants to know everything in advance. He wants Jesus to lay it out to him. What exactly is going to happen down there? Is there going to be any danger, Lord? Are we going to get hurt? Are you going to get stoned? Tell us now. And so there's a very significant statement by Jesus here, and we miss it. You know why? Because Jesus didn't say anything. Thomas is basically saying, Lord, uh, is it going to be okay? And Jesus doesn't say anything. Why? Because Thomas needs to just trust the Lord. It's in Jesus's hands. You're safe when you're in Jesus' hand. doesn't mean you won't die. If you do, and if you're in the will of God, then you're in the will of God. That's where you want to be. And so Thomas, like us, needs to learn this lesson of trusting the Lord, particularly with, with the future. It's interesting, by the way, Jesus never said anything here about anybody dying, except about Lazarus, and he's going to raise him from the dead. So not only is nobody going to die when they go to Bethany, somebody's going to come back to life. It's the very opposite. Isn't it amazing how their thoughts have created the situation where they're going to die? And by the way, it never happens. They just made it all up. It's all in their head. And so now they got this extra baggage of worrying about dying, going all the way over to Bethany, you know, and all the time they are probably looking behind the bushes, you know, for a Jew with a stone in his hand. Right. A lot of wasted effort, you know, do we ever do that? If you added up the days, weeks, months and years that you and I have added to our lives of things that we were afraid would happen that never happened. How much do you think it would add up to? <laughs> a whole nother lifetime, right? We don't need that. Jesus had told them early in, the, in his ministry, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that good? Jesus says, what good is your worrying going to do? You can't add one cubit to your stature. You can't even add an inch. Well, they have. The, I can just see them all going down constantly with visions of uh, Pharisees with stones in their hands, you know. But as it turned out, as we know, a man was raised from the dead. No disciple was touched. Jesus was not harmed. God was glorified. Okay? I wonder how, in retrospect, Thomas looks back. Well, let us go die with him. You know, how he felt looking back on that. All that fear and worry, wasted energy. Thomas needed to learn to trust Jesus. You know, I was wondering, very often we'd like to know what tomorrow is going to bring. Let your mind kind of go for a minute and imagine what it would be like if when you learned to read, you were given a book by God that had the rest of your life written out so that you knew everything that was going to happen in your life. Everything. Every word you were going to say, every action. Would you like that? You know, you wouldn't have to worry about tomorrow. You just turn. You know, what is it today? The 18th? <laughs> February 19th, 2011. Let's see what's going to happen. You know, it's like reading a script. You know, you could find out ahead of time all about um, if you're going to get married, who it's going to be. Imagine that. Knowing 10 years in advance, you know, when they're in diapers or high school or whatever, you know, I'm going to marry that person. Wouldn't that be cool? Huh? You could know in advance, um, you know, what what you were going to do with your life, uh, where you'd go to school, what you'd major in, you know, if you're going to have a career, what you were going to do. Every time you got sick or when you were going to have a, an injury, you'd know ahead of time. The interesting thing is you might try to avoid it, but you're not going to be able to. You're just going to know in advance it's going to happen and then it's going to happen. So there's some negatives to it, huh? You know? You'd have all the high points and the catastrophes. And then there'd be the last page. You know, the day you die right there. There are problems with that. First of all, (laughs) I think as soon as you got your book, you'd want to change it. (laughs) You know, you'd want to avoid certain things. You'd want to change certain things, but you wouldn't be able to. You know what? Life would be so boring. There'd be no surprises. Wow. I don't know if I'd like that. I thought about something, too. You know what? Reading that book, it would be so easy for you to see your sin. It would, you know, because you wouldn't be in the heat of the moment. You just read this stuff and you see the things that you think and you say and you do and you go, whoa. I didn't realize I was like that. But the bottom line is, you see, the future is for the Lord. 
We're not God. And he is. And so that's, that's his job. He knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning. Okay. Uh, next a little glimpse here is in chapter 14 of John. It could be real simple this morning. All the passages are right here at the end of John. <clears throat> and as we keep going right in the Bible, the times are going to get more and more discouraging because we're getting closer, of course, to the crucifixion. So just to get the context here, we'll start reading in chapter 13, verse 33. The Lord is talking to the disciples and he's getting them ready for the fact that he's not going to be there in a little while. He's going to go away. Okay. So uh, he's been talking. He says, verse 33, chapter 13, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. Now, imagine being a disciple. He's telling you I'm going somewhere and you can't come with me. See, so they're all feeling a little depressed, you know, kind of discouraged. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord... Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me okay so first of all let's make sure we understand what jesus is saying jesus is talking about going away and he's talking about two different goings away in verse 36 jesus says this where i am going you cannot follow me now where's he going there where they cannot follow the cross that's correct that's a trip he had to make by himself But you shall follow me afterward. Where's he going to go that they're going to follow him there? Heaven. That's right. Okay. So he's talking about two goings. One, they can go with him. The other one, they can't go with him. The other, they can go with him. In fact, go to him. Now, as you understand the language here, you would not get that as a disciple. And he meant it that way. If it bothers you that Jesus is being vague, it's deliberate. Again, it's only important that Jesus knows the details. It's not important that you know. Okay? Why? Because that way we have to trust him. (laughs) That's good. That's good that we don't know the details. Okay? We think it's a bad thing, but it's really a good thing. So if it bothers you that Jesus is being vague, it's a good thing. 
All right, it promotes trust, or at least it should. So, uh, uh, Peter is the first one who intervenes and basically says, Lord, we don't understand a word you're saying. Okay? And so he just says, Lord, where are you going? Okay? Good question, right? Jesus doesn't tell him. He doesn't tell him where he's going. He doesn't say, I'm going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Okay. Now, they had plenty of clues earlier where Jesus said he was going to be crucified, but they, as you, we saw last week, that's out of their minds. They, they don't even think about that. They're not interested in hearing that kind of stuff. Now, in, uh, I want to point out something. Thomas was very bold when he asked later. Or actually, when he says, when he corrects the Lord and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. That was a bold thing to do because of what just happened to Peter. Here we are. Peter asks this uh, harmless question, Lord, where are you going? And then um, when Jesus doesn't make it clear where he's going, Peter says, look, I don't care where you're going. If it means dying, I'll be happy to go. And Jesus tells him, of course, and it's a good thing that he tells Peter so that when it ha- Peter finally does deny the Lord, you know, it, it, he knows that the Lord knew ahead of time that it was going to happen. But he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight before the, the rooster crows. Would that encourage you to uh, chime in and, you know, Lord, uh, let me try, you know, where are you going? And so there was a certain amount of boldness here on Thomas, Thomas's part. But uh, the way he phrases it, you can see uh, he's almost a little irritated with the Lord because he corrects the Lord. Jesus had just said in verse four, where I go, you know, and the way, you know. OK. Now, what does Thomas say? Lord, you're wrong. We do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? He's correcting the Lord. Now. Was Jesus lying? Did they? Yes, they knew. They knew where he was going. They didn't. How can I put it? Jesus says, where I go, you know. What he means is the place you know very well. I've talked about it before. I'm going to my father. He said that many times. That's what he meant. And as far as the way, they know that too. They don't know that it is the way, but they know the way. It's Jesus. Do you follow that? So what Jesus is saying is very true, but they don't understand what he's saying right now. And that's very important that Jesus said it that way. Because when he says the way, you know, you know, the way there. He's stressing to them. I'm not going to give you details. You know enough already, and that's all you you need to know. And when uh, Thomas says, Lord, you're wrong, we don't know the way. Jesus brings it right home when he says, I am the way. You see, that's all you need. You know me. You're in my hands. That's what Jesus is saying. That's all you need to know. I may never tell you where you're going and how you're going to get there. You know me and and you're safe. You don't need to know any more than that. You got that? A very uh, wonderful way of dealing with his disciples here. And to promote some trust and faith. 
I don't think that satisfied uh, Thomas because he still didn't under he he wants a clear statement. You know, he wants Jesus to say something like, "Okay, I'm going two places right now. I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Then I'm going to go to heaven. That's the second place. And later I'm going to come back and take you. In fact, he just said that, didn't he? I'm going to go and prepare a place and then I'm going to come and I'm going to receive you to myself. Now, he didn't say where it is, although he said in my father's house, there are many mansions. There's enough clues in here to more than satisfy them. But they want they want it all laid out in in black and white, real clear. So when you read these sections, particularly the end of John, where Jesus is not being real clear, it's for a reason. It's to promote faith, to promote trust in the disciples. You know, you parents, you ever had uh, told your kids something and that's not good enough for them? They want to know more. You know? Well, no, you can't go out. Why? Why not? Well, you know, it's raining or whatever, you know, or... You were a bad boy yesterday or something. Well, I I should be able to go out anyway. Explain it to me. Right? We want to know all the details and then we'll decide if it's right or not. (laughs) I work out at the lab in Livermore and out there we have documents of various classification levels. Um, You've heard some of the words classified, secret, top secret, and so on. And people think that uh, if you have the clearance that's at the level of the document, that you can read the document. In other words, if it's a top secret document and you have a top secret clearance, then you can just go march right into the vault and, and take that document out and go read it. Did you know that's not true? You can't do that. Because there's another criterion. You know what it is? It's called the need to know. You ever heard that before? So even though you may have a top secret clearance, unless you need to know what's in that document, you're not going to see it. You see, why would you why would you be entitled to see it? You don't need to know it. We want to know all the details of God's working. Why is he doing that? What's going to happen tomorrow? I'm sorry, that's top secret. You don't have that clearance. Okay, nobody's cleared for that except one person, God himself. And he has the need to know. And he's the only one. So it ends right there. There are other reasons, too, here, by the way, that Jesus is deliberately vague about certain things. First of all, uh, it's an interesting verse in in, uh, 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You understand what that's saying? It's saying if uh, the powers that be, and that's not necessarily earthly rulers, okay, that's Satan and all of his legions. If they had known what God was going to do on the cross, that is pay for our sins and and make a, a way into heaven for sinners in a righteous way, they never would have crucified Jesus. They would have wanted to thwart God's plan, you see. That's what he's saying. But they didn't know. The devil was dancing a jig when Jesus was nailed to that cross. He thought, all right, I've won. And little did he know he was playing right into God's hands. Isn't that great? 
God's like that, you see. He's a lot smarter than you and me. And so uh, Jesus is not about to say, okay, you guys, listen, here's what's really going on for ages. There's been no entrance into heaven. I'm going to create one right now by going on that cross and dying for your sins. So you can go to heaven. He can say it afterwards, but not as clearly like that before. It's interesting that there are uh, a couple of instances where Jesus does reveal the future to two disciples. Peter and John. But he doesn't give them the day-by-day future. They're just very general sketches. And it's very interesting because the most important words that he tells them in that are words that apply to you and me. It's, uh, it's at the end of John, and Peter and Jesus is talking to Peter. And he opens up the future for Peter, and he says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and take you where you do not wish. Okay? Peter knew about his future there. Isn't that good? You think he's any wiser? And then John inserts this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. What Jesus was saying, you're going to stretch out your hands and somebody's going to take you where you don't want to go. Peter was crucified in Rome. He died for the Lord. And so that's why John says uh, he was signifying by what death he would glorify God. But here are the big words. Jesus said to him after that, follow me. You got that? He said, don't worry about what's going to happen to you. Don't worry about where you're going to go. You don't need to have any more details. Follow me. I'm the focus. You got that? Look at me. Go where I go. Go where I want you to go. Peter, like you and me, that wasn't enough for him. As soon as he heard that, uh, he wondered, well, what about John? And he turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also leaned on his breast at the supper. That's John. And he said to the Lord, Lord, uh, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Whoa. He's correcting G- uh, Peter and also uh, you know that the rumor started after that that John was not going to die because it was going to remain until Jesus came. Jesus didn't say that. All he said was, if I will that he remains until I come, what's that to you? But here's the important words. After he said that, he looked at Peter and he said, you follow me. Isn't that good? Don't worry about... Uh, the details of your future, don't worry about John, you just follow me. Okay, well, he's saying that to all the believers here this morning. You follow me, that's it. The uh, third time Thomas speaks up for us, of course, is John chapter 20.
This is after the resurrection. And I said at the beginning, I think Thomas got a bit of a bum rap. The reason is, is because we get on Thomas for not believing until he'd seen the risen Lord. Well, I hate to say it, but all the other disciples were just like that. Weren't they? We just saw it last week. Look at the passages. The women went to the tomb. The angel said, you know, look, he's not here. He's risen. They go back and tell the disciples. What do the disciples do? Eh, that's a bunch of old women's tales. You know, they didn't believe it. So in that way, Thomas is no different from the others. But I believe he's different in this sense in that he was more easily discouraged. And I think he was really discouraged after the crucifixion because of uh, what happened here. The Lord comes and he appears to the disciples, the beginning of the chapter, or the middle of it. And then in verse 24, it says this. Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, that's interesting. We're not told the reason. But uh, the other ten, of course, Judas is, is dead, but the other ten were together, along with probably lots of other disciples. But for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. And I believe it's because he was just so discouraged. I think he was just disillusioned. I think he was really down in the dumps. And the Lord came and he appeared to them when Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas didn't see it. So verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. In other words, they they, uh, find Thomas wherever he was, probably depressed somewhere. And they're trying to buck him up, you know, we've seen the Lord. He is risen, just like the women said. They're trying to encourage him, right? You think that'd do it if all of them come and say, look, we saw him. We handled him. We saw him eat. Remember? He did all of those things. Well, at at this point, Thomas is is just, uh, you, you can't encourage him. He's so down in the dumps. Listen to his response. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's a voice of discouragement. You know? Uh, He's at the bottom. Now, what's interesting to me is the next few words, verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't come right away. You got this discouraged disciple, the poor guy, you know, he needs his spirits need to be lifted. Lord, please come make a special appearance. You know, help Thomas. Eight days later. Why did the Lord do that? Why did he wait? For the same reason he waits on you and me. We need to learn that he is the Lord. It can be trusted. And he's not our bellhop. You know, we ring the bell and Jesus comes right now. Lord, I need you right now. You got to do this. You know? <clears throat> so Thomas had eight days to think about it and pray about it. 
Think about his life. Think about the Lord. And he's very specific. It, it, seeing Jesus isn't going to do it for him, he says. I want to be able to put my hands into the very wounds that he got on that cross. Well, eight days later, Thomas is with him. Jesus came, verse 26, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, well, we have a transformation here in the life of Thomas. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, we're not told here that he even touched the Lord. Did you notice that? And with all the details God is giving us in this section uh, about him insisting on putting his finger in the nail prints and his hand in his side, it doesn't say in verse 28, and Thomas put his finger into the nail prints and then he thrust his hand into his side. What it says is, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I think Thomas was so overwhelmed in seeing the risen Lord. That was enough for him. And he's transformed. This declaration, by the way, is the high point in the New Testament of all New Testament characters. You realize that? No one ever in the New Testament spoke so clearly to the incarnate deity as Thomas did by saying, my Lord and my God. Wow. Can you imagine being able to address God in the flesh and say, my God. He's the only one who did that. His discouragement is gone. By the way, the cultists and the atheists and the skeptics, as you probably know, like to take this passage and they say, well, Thomas wasn't addressing Jesus as God. He was just exclaiming, my Lord, my God, you know. I love the word of God because God always goes out of his way when there are passages like that to make sure you can't do that kind of tricks with the word of God. Let's see again what it says. Thomas answered. That means he's talking to Jesus. He's not exclaiming. Okay. And then if that's not clear enough and said to him. He's talking to Jesus. You got that? It says it twice. Nothing could be clearer. No, he's not exclaiming to the air. He's speaking to Jesus and he's telling Jesus. He's calling Jesus, my Lord. And my God. And he's right. And then that wonderful verse 29, by the way, that's talking about you and me. Jesus is talking about you there. Isn't that cool? Listen, Jesus says this. Blessed are those who have not seen. Does that apply to you? You ever seen Jesus in the flesh? I haven't. Do you believe that he's your Lord and your God? If you do, you're blessed. Jesus says that. That's a wonderful thing. Praise God. Just take his word for it. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, well, I'm glad it had a happy ending. Thomas was, out of all the disciples, probably the most easily discouraged. And I know some people that are like that. They're just prone to discouragement. Really, it's the opposite of faith. It's not a good thing. And Jesus is trying to teach Thomas here, and he finally did, and you. It's the opposite of faith. The cure for discouragement is trust in Jesus. Jesus knows what he's doing. I think that's why the discouragement was banished from Thomas's life right here, because finally he saw who he'd been dealing with all that time and that he could have trusted him all along. You see, he's his God. By the way, um, there are some traditions that you can't rely on and others that you can. And it's almost certain what happened to Thomas uh, after this. What we can say with a pretty uh, a good measure of confidence what happened to Thomas. And there are some in our midst who probably know uh, better than others here what happened. Thomas became a missionary and he went to India to spread the gospel. And in around 70 AD, he was martyred. He died for the Lord there, for his faith in the Lord. So he was a discouraged one before, but uh, he was courageous for the Lord after that, after meeting the risen Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning along with Thomas, we who know you. We have not seen you, and yet, Lord, we do believe. We think of Peter's words, whom having not seen, you love. And Lord, that is true of us. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who was prone to discouragement, Perhaps they're discouraged this morning. Lord, we pray that you might reveal yourself in a special way as the risen Lord and God to them. That they might look to you and realize they have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. That you are indeed on the throne and in control. We thank you, Lord, that we serve and worship a risen Savior who is soon coming again to bring us to himself. Make it soon, Lord, we pray in your precious name. Amen.